Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for August 2018. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and today I'm joined by academic writer and programmer Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. And making a glorious return to the pod, our very good friend, academic writer and part of the Plato's Cave show on Melbourne radio station 3RRR, Stuart Richards. Welcome back, Stewie. Hello, hello. Thank you. <laughs> on today's show, we're going to be talking through the latest film from Spike Lee, the provocatively titled Black Klansman. And then we're going to look at the survey taken by 51 Australian film writers who were asked to identify the best 25 Australian films of the 21st century. And then Eloise is going to take us through her experiences at the Ritrovado Film Festival in Bologna in June, wasn't it, of this year? It was, yeah, June. June. Yeah. And we'll finish off, as always, with the best thing that we have seen in the month of August. And for our patrons, we're going to extend our discussion of Spike Lee and think through Black Klansman in relation to a number of his earlier films. Great. That sounds fun. I hope it will be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get things out of the way. Black Klansman is a roughly biographical account of the first black detective in Colorado Springs, a man named Ron Stallworth, played by John David Washington, who over the telephone infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan by pretending to be a white man sympathetic to their views. He soon recruits a few colleagues in his quest to investigate the Klan, including Adam Driver's character Flip Zimmerman, who, despite being a Jew, pretends to be a Gentile and assumes the role of Stallworth in person. The case is complicated by the spectre of terrorist activity from the Klan and Stallworth's relationship with both a black activist named Patrice, played by Lauren Harrier, and the Grand Wizard himself, David Duke, played by Topher Grace. It's part thriller, it's part comedy, part procedural and part black exploitation film. Eloise, do all of the parts work? I don't think so. I think that overall I quite like this, but one of my major problems with it is that the romantic storyline just was completely unnecessary. Didn't need to be there. I understand that Patrice, who you mentioned, is an activist and she's the president of the um, the union, oh, the student union, union, student yeah. union, the black student union. Yeah, that's right. But so maybe her presence in the film is necessary, but it, every time it kind of returned to Ron and her courtship, it just seemed as though it was interrupting the narrative. And that to me really slowed it down and was a big problem structurally, um, for the rest of it, which is, uh, which was the main focus. Um, was the, you know, the infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan and what the police force was doing and the focus on, you know, systemic racism, for instance. So that that romantic storyline just seemed really heavily weighted to me. It seemed like a a film that, I I mean, I actually really enjoyed it, but if there's something to pick on, Mm -hmm. it's that relationship. Mm -hmm. And I would also suggest the opening scene, which I thought was kind of ridiculous as well. I loved the opening scene. Did you? Okay. All right. Well, well, convince me. Well, before we get to that, I, I I think she's a really important character, Patrice, because she is kind of one side of... Um, uh, Washington's character, where he's, he's, he's trying to reconcile his status as a cop, but also as a black man. Yeah. So he's trying to nurture these friendships, particularly with Flip, played by Adam Driver. Um, and on the other side, he's trying to um, really engage with his status as a black man in this race, this very racist um, and divisive time. Um, and you can see that in how he really struggles to talk, you know, quote unquote jive, um, with Patrice. And so I think his, maybe not necessarily his kind of flirtations with her or his love for her, um, is needed, but I think his kind of wanting to be connected with that group, I think is really, really important. And obviously with so many characters, and only sort of a certain amount of time, you can't really go into any depth or any of the other characters in that sort of student union activist group. But I think sort of having her there is really important. I struggled with her dialogue. I thought she was a bit of a, just sort of a one note character. Like, I can't date pigs. And maybe that's because she was only there to be that other side of Washington's character. Which I think could have been maybe set up and just Mm. referred to without having Patrice there. And maybe that's why she wasn't fleshed out. Yeah, which I think was really disappointing because there's everything else in this film is so great. Agreed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great film. I've read a criticism. I can't remember who it was who wrote that the group of, um, guys who are in the Ku Klux Klan who we see apart or that they all are kind of um, cartoonish 
and stereotypical and they just all seem like buffoons, mm. completely um, kind of, not completely innocuous, but, you know, not representing the kind of danger and anger that the Ku Klux Klan members actually had and um, their, their actual real level of threat. And that having them there just kind of seemed as though it was while the film, while Spike Lee has said this film is meant to be a warning about that danger, that it Mm. wasn't really taking it seriously. But for me, I found it quite powerful, especially when you consider the last moments of the film, that footage of Charlottesville, Mm. um, that, that what he's saying is that you might have guys who on the surface look like buffoons, but, but this is what happens. And although it's a very obvious message, I think it is very well integrated Mm. into the actual narrative. There's an everydayness to them. Yeah. 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 I I mean, the... The way they kind of joke and drink beer and kind of play pool, like I, there is an everydayness and kind of a normality to that, yeah. where you could kind of see your mates That's doing thing, right? that, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but unexpectedly leading to, but unexpectedly yeah, leading to yeah. a riot. There was one um, for me. Uh, there's the the actress that plays the wife, Connie. Yeah, Connie yeah, yeah. is so good. She's brilliant, but yes. she's a a very well, um, for, I guess sort of in kind of queer film circles, she's a very well-known comic actress. Right. Um, so she does a few uh, lesbian web series and she yeah. is in one of my favourite films uh, called Another Gay Movie, <laughs> which is uh, like a gay remake of American Pie. Right. And she plays the lesbian stifler. Uh, called, Muff- right. <laughs> called Muffler. <laughs> and when I saw her, I was like, oh, that's Muffler. <laughs> and so for me, it was really hard to keep a straight face and yeah. um, like not judge her as this horrible racist yeah. character because it's like, because she's so endearing in so many of her other yeah. roles and she's a really great comic actress. Yeah. Right. And you do see that in her performance. But she is meant to be this endearing person. Yeah. Just seeing yeah. absolutely nothing at all wrong with her. Yeah. Her her, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Like in Entrenched racism and her hatred, mm. yeah. um, and that's she was one of my favourite characters yeah, as she's well. Great. She's also done a, a bunch of other films with Spike Lee, so I think yeah. you know she sort of recurs in some of his films. Um, but she was one of you know if you're looking at the way that the clan are depicted, you're right; mm. they're kind of buffoony. Yeah, but they somebody like Connie is the person I think you need where you, I mean, look at her. She seems lovable. She seems sweet. She's going to make you a cup of tea. She's going to make you a cake. And then she's going to tell you much, you know, how much she hates the Jews Mm -hmm. and how, you know, the blacks are destroying the world. And, you know, when you actually do sometimes confront that level of racism, it can come from somebody who you think is Mm. initially really lovely. And that's why I I felt, I've, I've heard those criticisms as well. And I kind of don't buy it that, that's my experience of sitting yeah. down with people every now and again and somebody says something incredibly obnoxious and you think, oh, you're that kind of a person. And I yeah. never realised it. Yeah, you know? back yeah. away slowly. Yeah. Exactly. What do, you, what do you guys think of Adam Driver in this role? I think he's awesome. I think yeah. he's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, think I think he's incredible. And I think he's a really important character because that a lot of people, I think, go through... Um, when dealing with bigotry or any forms of like isms um, or, obi- or phobias, where um, he is this kind of everyday white guy that doesn't have any issues, and for him, all of the racism is other people's problems, yeah. mm-hmm. and so he doesn't really. There's like there's clearly a divide there where when he's a cop, he's a cop, he just does his job. Yeah. Where. As he kind of slowly realizes the um, anti-sem- heavy anti-Semitism yeah. of the the Ku Klux Klan, then he's like, actually, this really directly affects me, right. um, and I'm invested in this. And that kind of slow realization, um, the how he is personally in, in invested in this yeah. um, fight against the Ku Klux Klan, I think is a really important transition. Yeah. I think he's really good at, at demonstrating that. You know, he he understands he has to play a role because he essentially becomes the the avatar for Ron mm. in real life. Like he, Ron might speak to the clan on the phone, but he's the person who meets them mm. and goes yeah. out and shoots with them or whatever. Mm. And he does this great uh, job of representing like I am one of the clan and I'm a complete yeah. asshole. And at the same time, there's a thing, kind of an expression on his face, a little flicker, a little change every now and again where you go, yeah. oh, yeah, he knows what how yeah. desperately and terrible it is. It's in the eyes. Yeah. He's such a great actor because yeah. it's so yeah. subtle. Yeah. 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 
I um I do love him. I think he's great, and I love that there's a complexity to him. That he's mm. not just the you know the white cipher who can go and you know yeah, engage yeah. with the KKK. That he actually has a stake in it as mm. well. Yeah. I remember a friend saying he felt it like difficult to get over. And you know, of course, that we watch films, we need to be able to suspend our disbelief. But there's that one line where they say you sound different on the phone, and he says I've got allergies. And that that's it. And that yeah. there's, for the course of the rest of it, there's no more comment on how the voices are so, so different. Yeah, yeah they're so different. Yeah. But apparently, because, uh, you know, the treasure trove that is IMDb trivia, um, <laughs> David Duke didn't know the, the full story until much years later when a newspaper called him to get his side of the story. Yep. So he, David Duke was completely fooled by in real life. Wow. So it, it's, for us, it seems ridiculous, but they yep. pulled it off. Yep. Yeah. I like that. Miriam Bale in her review, she didn't like the film very much, but she said that the whole film kind of seemed like one really long setup to a joke, which mm. was that David Duke got fooled by yeah. a black yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, which I guess essentially it kind of is, although it's very mm. political in its own way in that lead up to that. Yeah. Movie. What yeah. did you think of the final montage of all of the... Do we reveal, do we reveal what it is or is it more uh, powerful when it's unexpected? I, I think we can allude to the fact that it you know, heads towards kind of real life events. That, I yeah. did and, reference and, it before, yeah. I guess, anyway. Yeah. So. yeah. But, I mean, uh, you know... I, it was one of the things that, that I really wanted to talk about, mm. not just that end, but consistently throughout that film. And frankly, we'll talk about this later in the in the bonus segment. But mm. um, his capacity to use montage and to con- like historically contextualize yeah. film and events is mm. second to none. He's mm. genius, which is why that opening shot of Gone with the Wind is so. Oh no, important. yeah, that scene is fantastic. Yeah. I wasn't crazy about the the Alec Baldwin stuff. Oh, I missed that because um, the screening I went to started a few minutes early due to a scheduling clash, but they hadn't actually sent me an email about it. So I came in in the Alec Baldwin bit, but there was a scene from Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Yeah. when Mm. she's sort of walking through the The, field of bodies. The field of bodies in Atlanta. And then there's the... um, the flag. Yeah. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. I mean, that's really interesting because, mm. you know, you think about this, which is seen as one of the greatest, most racist films of all time, and that is, um, you know, still up for debate. Yep. But mm. opening with a, a film, a piece of Hollywood history, yeah. essentially, and then, and then moving embe- through yeah. and mm. then finishing on, you know, news but, footage. Yeah. But also um, embedding a whole sequence that's about birth of a nation as well, yeah. which is really I extraordinary. That was fantastic. Yeah. And Harry yeah. Belafonte's being, oh, you know, so Harry Belafonte oh, yeah. as the person who you are meant to empathise with and listen to his history and just, mm. I feel like, I mean, people couldn't not know that that was Harry Belafonte, right? Well, if you don't know who Harry Belafonte yeah. is, you wouldn't. Yeah, but, that's true. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, you, I mean, yeah. he's used as this historical figure. Yeah. Um, but then you can't, as long as you know who he is, mm. you can't look at that yeah. character without seeing the actor and mm. his history of activism and how important, incredibly yeah. important, him and Poitier sure. are kind of the two people who really spearheaded mm. like, yeah. you know, representation and in Spike Lee, And we will talk about this later in the uh, patron segment of the podcast, but is so good at casting because, I mean, he's in almost all of his films, you know, that he's not in this film, I think is quite surprising. Yeah. Mm. But he's so good at that kind of um, casting where you can bring in a history or bring in a, a real life or a cinematic history into yeah. his own films through that, which I think relates to his skill with montage yeah. uh, in that way as yeah. well. Oh, genius. Yeah. Really, really well done. Yeah. And that, that ending, I was, um, like I, my jaw was on the floor and yeah. I was, I, tears were in my eyes. Like yeah. that fight, it's so powerful. Yeah. Me too. Just, I, just the way it cuts, you know, and kind yeah. of, cause it kind of ends, you know, it goes through this whole story and mm. then it reaches this kind of conclusion and then you have some jokiness in the, in yeah. the um, yeah, but the final police fictional scene. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, and yeah. then it cuts and, you know, I think if it didn't have that final scene of them joking, it maybe wouldn't have been quite as powerful, but, yeah. Yeah, but it was because yeah. of yeah. that. Yeah. Because he's so skilled at like taking an idea, a story, mm. a set of characters and saying, you might think that this is fictional or an adaptation it's from not, rough events. It's now. But look what happened last year. Yeah, yeah. and look and how our president yeah. is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we recommend it. We think I two think thumbs up. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. great.
In July, the website flix.com.au, led by writer Luke Buckmaster, published a polled list of the top 10 Australian films of the 21st century, with the runners-up to 25. For a cynic, I think, the top 10 was not surprising, and George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road took top spot, which I think it should have, as it's the most recent and most widely successful and recognised Australian films. Only 51 people were polled, which isn't that many, but it is a significant moment of time in Australian film history. How did you guys see this poll when it came out? Yeah, I mean, I... And because I, I was with my housemate last night and I was going through the list with her and she had this same reaction to me when you find out Mad Max topped it. You're like, oh yeah, it's yeah. just not very exciting. Mm. Like it's, I, yeah, I mean, it's sense. kind of obvious. There, it, it is, is obvious. There's no, yeah. and even the other ones in the top 10 aren't really, I mean, the, the Babadook, I'm really happy that's up there, but Samson and Delilah is another one. Yep. I think Samson and Delilah, perhaps that should have been number one. That would have been a, that yeah. would have been a really exciting moment going, holy yep. shit, yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great that both of Warwick Thornton's features were in there, but mm, if yes. I think about the top 10, I think that Samson and Delilah deserved it mm. more. And I do see something of like a short-term memory going on, even oh, though yeah. Lantana was in the top 10, yeah. Chopper was in the top 10. Yep. Yeah. Um, Look Both Ways was in the top 25, you know, but there was very much like a last kind of eight years type Mm. of waiting. And I think that when you, if you just say, okay, we're looking at the last 18 years of Australian cinema, I mean, Mm. you you almost can't go past Fury Road just because it was so huge, it was so successful and it was so good. I mean, you know, it's easy to kind of, oh, well, it was obvious and, and stuff. But yeah. it was, it's obvious because it was mm. so extraordinary. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I must admit, I looked at some of these and thought, "Oh, really?" Like uh, some yeah. of the some of the films in here that I think, look, you were kind of okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not quite sure why you're mm. getting a Guernsey, and there are other, yeah, to my eyes, better films that have been omitted. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would also argue probably that Moulin Rouge should probably be up fairly high as well. It's sitting in at number 11, but yeah, you know, I think that's, that's a pretty amazing yeah. thing. I'm surprised that 52 Tuesdays didn't make it because mm. uh, I think that's a great film and yeah. I think what that does with its narrative I think is incredible. Look, there's I think there's a, yeah. a lot of stuff that's missing. and there's a lot of stuff that's missing. I see this... I mean, you know, there were there was a, quite a diversity of people polled. Yeah. Um, only 51, but still mm. seemed to be quite a range of... Generations, you know, genders, yeah. um, geographical placements of, of Interestingly, though, there's not many women filmmakers in the list. Mm. Well, we have The Dressmaker what, yeah, and Babadook. Four. four. So in the top 25, there's yeah. four. There's Look Both Ways, Sherpa, yeah. Dressmaker and Babadook. Yeah. And I, even though it was pretty much 50-50 with mm. women and um, men being polled, the fact that there's only four made by women in the top 25 is significant of, I think, the way that Australian film discourse has developed in that only a very few films kind of get propped up and you see Mm. that reflected in the top 10 and even the top 25, Mm. that kind of all of the usual suspects are here. Mm. Yeah. Essentially, and there's so many more films. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like Australian film, uh, at least, you know, I mean, in the prior century, maybe not quite in this one, but if you're going to, like, think about successful and um, talented Australian uh, women filmmakers, like, Australia is the place for Mm. it. Yeah. 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 And so I found that really saddening. Yeah. Yeah. But but I guess the flip side of that is, are there female-directed films that you feel like should be in there? 52 Tuesdays. Uh, 52 <laughs> Tuesdays. Like I mean, I, I, would have, I would have argued for Berlin Syndrome. Yes. Um, the Kate Shaw yeah. film yeah, that, that I really, really like. Yeah, that didn't even get in there. Look, my, I included The Silences in there. I included um, Letters to Ali, which I yep. really mm. like yep. um, in my top ten. Um, One Night the Moon, which I... Because yeah, really I, powerful. Because when, because I, I also went through the the full list and see what all individually what each critic did, and when I saw you putting one night at the moon, I was like, holy shit, yeah! Well, how is that not in? Mm. How is that? How are you the only person that actually listed that? I mean, is that because it was from you know the early two thousands and yeah, so... which goes short term yeah. memory. Yeah, and it's not yeah. you know I mean people put I did see a few 
critics, and I almost put this on, but then I chose to chose to um, include letters to Ali, but people mm. put um, the goddess of 1967. Yep. There were a few mm. entries with yep. that, and that's the year 2000. Yep. So, but you know, it's just mm. in the discourse around cinema, yeah, in the whole world, but I think also in Australia, yeah. it's very. Um, there's only a very few films that continue to get spoken about. Yeah, know? no, that's true. I mean, some of the ones that, that I kind of wish had been featured in there somewhere. Mm. I, I'm a big fan of Balibo, the Robert Connolly yeah. film, which yeah. I think is, I mean, some of these films do have flaws and Balibo is mm. certainly not perfect. I think mm. Balibo is an incredible film. Mm-hmm. I really yeah. like Home Song Stories, the Tony yeah. Ayres film. Yeah, and I wish I that, that had been in there. Didn't get a Guernsey. And there was mm. a, a film from, well, there's a couple of films, Ali's Wedding, uh, recently yep. that I really enjoyed as, as a kind of very yeah. broad, super appealing, mm. you know, um, lovely kind of romantic comedy. And yeah. there was a horror film called Killing Ground, uh, was it last year? Yeah. That I really, really liked. Like Mungo. Nobody I'm surprised about. that didn't like get Mungo a... is another one. Yeah. And there's been a few really great films this year, particularly at the last, um, uh, edition of Myth. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, Gurumul earlier this year mm. and Strange Colours at the festival. That's true. I think um, Acute Misfortune was excellent. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that would have been on my list if mm. I had seen it. So I think maybe kind of if this list came out after Myth, <laughs> yeah. I think that would have been a wise choice, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, a lot of work has gone into mm. the compiling of this list and contacting all of the critics. Yeah. So that should definitely be commended. Uh, but I think I'm not I'm sort of missing a few other key names in criticism. Mm. Mm. I do want to give a shout out to Lauren Carroll Harris and as Furs, I would also put in, in there. Um, not having their sort of uh, submissions as well, I think so does create a little bit... Just as prominent working critics today. Yeah. 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 It means it's a little lacking, I think. Yeah. I feel like this kind of list is really great. And I the reason that we wanted to talk about it on this Sensitive Cinema podcast is because we have international listeners. And it's mm. a great way yeah. of getting films that, that are really, really important in Australia, kind of like sharing them with the world. Yeah. And, yeah. But I feel... I don't know. It's not that it's a big criticism, but I feel like every single one of these films is already going to be known. Yeah. Well, I to mean, people, and so I mean, maybe it, it's not going. to... If you look at the top ten, I mean, certainly things like Chopper and Mad Max Fury Road, of course, mm. they're all going to be, and the Babadook. So yeah. you know, yeah. a couple of those absolutely broke out, and I get. What I'm kind of interested yeah, in, not, just yeah. looking at the top ten, mm. um, is I mean, some of these I don't think really have done much internationally. Yeah. But I'm more interested by the fact that we sort of, we've got a bunch of like Australian Westerns in there that I think is kind of really (laughs) interesting that we've got Proposition, we've got Mystery Road. Sweet um, Country. Sweet Country. That that we've got this sort of like almost like a a genre that we gravitate Mm. towards that we get. Yeah. And that critically it seems to be a little bit of a sweet spot in the same way that, you know, we've got Snowtown and, Animal Kingdom in there that we did a, a period where we just did a whole stack of, you know, urban kind of terror yeah. uh, sort of films. Mm-hmm. But but I liked this idea that it's sort of like the ones that are foremost in our minds tend to be these kind of outback westerns. And I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about how we're conceiving of our most successful mm. cinema, which totally. I think is cool. And also, I mean, we would touch on sort of the women filmmakers, but a lot of those genres and how, I mean, a lot of the key films in those genres are very kind of male-centric as well. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that the films that we do hold up as mm. sort of the beacons of Australian cinema are always yeah. kind of male stories. Mm. And I wonder, I mean, when I was looking at the list, I was noticing that as well. And I kept mm. thinking, oh, but what about that film and that film and that film? And then I realised they were all in the 80s or the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Right? And and that seemed to be a yeah. period where you yeah. had a whole stack of kind of mm. ladies right up the front. Mm. Yeah. When you're thinking about a film like Celia or Muriel's yeah. Wedding or, you know, those films were, were very female-focused. Shame, you know, has got a lot of attention just recently. Some interesting discussions about that in the, in the paper mm. um, about uh, the Deborah Lee Furness film, Shane, yeah. um, that, you know, that seemed to be an era in the kind of 80s and 90s where mm. there was that focus even Japanese story, which might have snuck in. No, that, that was that was 2000, I think, because I've sort yeah. of seen, yeah. seen that in a But it's interesting that now yeah. we've had that movement and it's yeah. so anti, what is that, antithetical? Opposite something, mm. where <laughs> if only Words. I had language. Um, <laughs> but you know, in a period where we're more conscious of female stories, mm. yeah, that we've actually the ones that we're identifying are actually more male centric. And mm. in the period when it was more male centric, 
we had more female stories. Yeah. That's so weird. Yeah. Still, I do love that, I mean, the dressmaker and look both ways. Uh, yes. Yeah. Both in the yeah. I'm really happy that look both ways. Yeah, me yeah. too. Because that's too. a great film. And I just want to say I'm really happy that Hale, the Emil Corton Wilson yep. film, mm. is yep. at number 14. Um, and Noise. Yep incredible film um, mm. from 2007 and I'm really glad that that's on there because I feel like that's not it's not discussed widely but the, you know a few people that I know know it and just and just adore it so yeah, yeah really and a great shout out to Mary and Max which is our yeah. animated film yes you know full disclosure friend and colleague Adam Elliott um, who is a wonderful animator wonderful filmmaker and I'm so stoked that he got in there yes mm. I yeah. know that's great as well yeah. I do yeah Love that film. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. What about Hacksaw Ridge? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Predestination at number 25. Oh. I'm really I mean, when not I started a fan scrolling of that film, down, so. I was like, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hacksaw Ridge is like filmed beautifully and is a awful film. But like, yeah, but does it deserve when... to kick off any number of other films that were like no. voted by? Good Lord. Yeah. How is yeah. Home Song Stories not in there, but we've yeah. got, you know, like Predestination. You know, Mel yeah. Gibson's yeah. Bloodfest. Yeah. Know. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a kind of complicated feeling about predestination. I recognise the way that it works, mm. and I'm also really aware of the ways that it doesn't. Yeah. Um, so I think that my experience with that film is that some people just like, this is amazing, mm. and and I'm not convinced that it is, but I do know yeah. that a lot of people really like it. Yeah. Mm. I don't know why. Yeah, anyway, maybe this poll will um, kind of rejuvenate a passion about Australian cinema yes. within Australia and also internationally. Yeah, and also a good shout out to a lot of really great working critics uh, in the, that yeah. are working in Australia right now. Absolutely. I mean, looking yeah. at the sort of all of the names who have submitted, such as this person, Eloise, uh-huh. um, <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of really great working critics. Um, so mm. film criticism it's, um, is still alive and well in yeah. Australia. Yeah, that's true. And that there really are a lot yeah. enough critics as well who are passionate about our mm. industry yeah. that, that we want to, mm. you know, contribute to a poll like this. Yeah, fantastic. So I guess the best advice is to start chasing down some of these titles that people mightn't have seen. And yeah. if you are an international listener, like pick up on some of the things that we've, some of the names we've dropped and, and Yeah, check them or out. get in touch and see what else, you know, we might, we might want to yes. recommend because we're, um, yeah, we're happy to, um, recommend Australian cinema. To yes. People. Yep. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. So listeners might have noticed last week that we had Michelle Carey and Timo Farrell on as our excellent co-hosts. Uh, but one very vital person was, in fact, missing. So now we can explain to where Eloise vanished. Where? To where. She was, in fact, swanning around sunny Europe on the back of having attended the Ritrovado Film Festival in June of this year. Both Stu and I, we were stuck in a miserable Melbourne winter while Eloise was blissfully... So cold. It was miserable, but without you, Eloise. Oh. Um, so we were cold, we were miserable. Eloise was blissfully eat, pray, loving her way across the continent. And now she gets to drive us all mad with envy. So come on, Eloise, tell us about your incredible experiences at the Ritrovado Film Festival. Well, I just want to say that I think more than blissfully swanning around Europe, I was 
drenched Drunk? in sweat no. <laughs> because it was a heat wave and it was just like impossible to move. Um, anyway, I mean, we could, we're from Melbourne. We have extremes of temperature. We could fight about feeling the most uncomfortable in yeah. any scenario at any point in the day. And we do. <laughs> we do. But we'll save that for, um, the pub later. So now I should report, I think on Bologna. So Bologna, um, is a place that has, a like really important film archive. I feel like a lot of our listeners will know about this. It's the center of a lot of restoration and they've had a festival, Il, Il Cinema Ritrovato. I don't know. That's the last time I'm going to attempt Italian? any kind of yeah, actual accent. So, um, so did you speak like that when you were in Bologna? Uh, I said, vino. <laughs> the only word you needed. Yeah. <laughs> Swanning, a little sweaty, yeah. walking into a bar. Yeah. Yes. 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 Basically. And basically. not just bars, like randomly in the street. <laughs> um, yes. But it um, has, this is its 32nd year. So I think, I, mean, I don't know how, what the size of it when it started, but I think it was much smaller. And now people come from all over the world. It's, there's something like 500 movies um, showing over a period of eight days or nine days and something like 8,000 people in attendance. So it's huge. It's someone who was there with me described it as being like being on a cruise ship but on land because you're just, there's so many people there who know each other and you're just walking to and from. Um, you know, the five separate cinemas that are all within a, a small radius of one another and you just bump into people all the time and say hello. So it's this really beautiful community experience um, but also it's brilliant because it's in Bologna which is my favourite city in Italy. I mean, I haven't been to all of them so don't come at me with your, like, <laughs> Rome's all, better or whatever. All of the Nepalese are like, Eloise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've been to Bologna as a city three times and this was my second time at Ritrovato. Um, so I feel like pro now that I can report on it. Um, but it is kind of a place where you go, you can go as a programmer, you can go as a writer, you can just go as, you know, a cinephile, a casual attendee. And so it's really fantastic as a place to see stuff from, there's a fascination with pre, um, you know, pre-1900 cinema. So there was a focus this year on, um, 1898, three years after the, um, you know, film premiered kind of thing. Um, there's a focus, there's usually a hundred year focus. So there was a focus on 2018 cinema this year, um, 1918, not 2000. I don't even know what I just said. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Retro. yeah. <laughs> Again with the vino. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and there's like a lot of programs that are kind of curated as little short films or just um, insights into people's work from before they were maybe famous. I remember last year there were a number of shorts directed by I think it was Leo McCary, oh. like animated shorts wow, wow. made by Leo McCary that he had, um, yeah, made before he came to Hollywood and started being a feature filmmaker. So that was really fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's just such a wide variety of stuff on there. And of course you go there and you have FOMO because there's five things showing at once and there are repeats, but you can't of course see everything, mm. um, in that short amount of time. So so what did you actually get to? Like, how, how many films did you do? I don't know because I um, have been away from my notes in the pre preparation for this podcast, so I haven't done a full tally, but I think I probably saw something like 35 films or, so, wow. or something. And in, and two weeks? In nine days. Nine days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty, like, it seems that's, like that's a shame a to go to Bologna and just sit in the, sit in the cinema <laughs> For the whole day, but you do, of course, have breaks mm. as well and then, you know, nights off and the evening sessions or a lot of the evening sessions are in the piazza. So it's, you know, you get to kind of be outdoors anyway and experience yeah. the city. Um, but my, what did I see? I saw a lot of stuff, but kind of one of the most affecting things that I did was I went to, there was a focus on Technicolor this year. So a lot of either original or, um, 
duplicate Technicolor prints screened at Bologna this year um, from a variety of places. I think a lot of them came from um, UCLA Film and Mm. Television Archive. Um, And these were just so... um, I mean, uh, these films I had seen before, but I saw them again on Technicolor dye transfer prints, and they were stunning. So Leave Her to Heaven, which was just something else. I mean, I feel like... (laughs) If you've seen this film, you know its power, yeah. and you know what that color would look like if it mm. was if it was the true color. And so to see that, um, I mean, it seems like it was slightly aged. It was maybe from like the seventies, I think. This print that we saw, they said they screened it twice, but only once they screened the thirty-five millimeter. The, another time they screened a DCP, mm. and I did speak to someone who went to both and said that the difference was astounding. Mm. Um, but leave her to heaven, just those reds of her lips and mm. everything, the flowers was, was stunning. I saw Cabaret no. and I didn't expect it to have the impact on me that it had. Cause I've seen Cabaret something like 25 times mm. already and it's, I, I adore it, but it just the widescreen print, yeah. um, the color, the greens mm. and reds and everything, um, just the big screen, uh, it kind of changed the way that I think about Cabaret now. Yeah. So that was, re- and that was an original 1972 print that they screened. Um, and Meet Me in St. Louis. Aww. I know. <laughs> Which I had seen before and never really understood. I've seen it about four times and I never understood. Of course, there, you know, the Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas mm. is a beautiful, affecting scene, but I'd never understood why, as a whole film, it, it had stood the test of time. I mean, apart from Manelli and Garland, I guess, who are <laughs> big enough reasons for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but seeing it on the big screen and in this print, like with this color and sound and clarity made me realize why it has become such a big film. So that for me was the truly kind of, um, revelatory experience. Um, yeah, the, the Technicolor thread was, was stunning. Of course, as, as someone who is tied to the, um, tactility of the film print as well, that was very Mm. moving for me. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, was there a a big silent program there as well? There, there was a big silent program. Um, and there's kind of a a group of people who will go to the festival just to see all the silent stuff and they're kind of silent groupies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, you know, there's a big divide and it's gangs versus, you know, (laughs) the sharks versus the jets, but, um, (laughs) but you do get the people that just go to all of the silent stuff. And I did see a bit of silent um, cinema. I tried to go to a couple of the Buster Keaton um, screenings. They were screening a restoration of The Scarecrow, which oh, I really like. Wow, I've <laughs> never seen that. Scarecrow. It's on YouTube, but um, of course it's small and kind of yeah. scratchy. Yeah. So I wanted to, but I couldn't get in because the cinema where they screen it is, is quite small. And of course, because it's Keaton, everyone wants to go. But I saw this fascinating film. I'm just going to consult my notes in case I wrote down who the director was. Um, I saw a fascinating film called The Crown Prince of the Republic, (laughs) directed by Edward... No, not even going to try it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't understand my writing. Um, From 1934. So it's a film made in the Soviet Union. Right but is a silent film and they were explaining, you know, I mean, a number of countries and territories. And I think Japan was one of them, um, converted to sound cinema very slowly. And so we're still making quite a lot Mm. of, um, silent films, even during the sound era. But this was a film that I think when I missed out on one of the Keatons, I went into this and it was, one of the best experiences I think I had at the festival. It was so funny. It's like a 68 minute film or something. And I can't, anyway, it's about four bachelors basically who, who find a baby on the street randomly and then have to just look after it for a day. And it's about their incompetence at knowing how to look after this baby. And, um, it's great fun. 
the script and the editing make it very, very funny. Yeah. Um, it's just an incredible kind of... <laughs> the baby isn't like Ted dancing. Yeah. <laughs> so that he grew up. No. No, no, he didn't. But they're they're always the best experiences at festivals, I find, where you know, like you pre-program, I'm gonna see that one, that one, that one, and then something happens which means you can't make it. Yeah. And then you end up like at the last minute tagging along to something else. And I always find that those really kind of impromptu screenings that Mm. you go to are always the best. Yeah, yeah. There's something so magical I'm, about it, I find. Yeah, just yeah. about kind of making a discovery. Yeah. Yeah, that you weren't really anticipating. So mm. that film I really loved. And I said to someone, like, why is it called The Crown Prince? He was just a regular baby. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and they, I was like, we, we kind of got to the conclusion that because, it, you know, it's a Soviet kind of community, like, everyone's a prince. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any old baby. You're a prince. Yeah. You're a prince. You're a prince. Yeah, but so that yeah. was that was excellent. Also, I feel like I need to um, mention Rosita, the Ernst Lubitsch film from 1923, which has been restored, kind of painstakingly restored by the Museum of Modern Art. Um, and I have kind of been following the developments of that restoration for years now, I think. Um, but it screened uh, on a DCP with a live score um, and has a brilliant performance by Mary Pickford. Mm. Um, there's kind of some kind of commentary that maybe the kind of the um, status that this film has in being such a long restoration process has given it more importance than it might otherwise deserve as a as an actual example of Lubitsch's kind of um, skill. Yeah. But I did really love that film. Uh, and Enamorada, just so I saw that in the outside, uh, the Piazza screening um, outside with the live score. Enamorada was a film not with a live score because it's a sound film from 1946 made by Emilio Fernandez, so a Mexican film. It had been restored by the Film Foundation um, and Scorsese and Olivia Harrison were there and introduced it oh, as wow. something wow. that they, because I think they work, well, Olivia Harrison works with the Film Foundation as well, but kind of told a story about growing up in California and watching a lot of Mexican films on television. So, mm. um, you know, hopefully she's going to do a bit more of that. But I'm mentioning that um, Enamorada because... Fernandez directed another film called Victims of Sin from 1951 that I just adored. It was 19, um, yeah, 1951, as I said, black and white, um, kind of about a woman played by Ninon Sevilla. Um, and she, uh, finds, uh, you know, there's, it's kind of a, an intro, but someone else who's working, you get the idea that there's a like great struggle, um, a woman is getting pressure put on her by her abusive partner. So she throws her baby in the garbage bin, basically. And this woman played by Sevilla just takes the baby out and becomes this baby's like mother. It's a terrific story. Mm. There's so much more to it, but some of the, the dancing at the beginning in this club is edited so quickly and so fantastically skillfully that it kind of seemed as though it was a... I don't know, a video clip from the 1980s or something where it was just a film from the 1950s <laughs> in Mexico. Like it was just kind of, I, I sat there and I didn't know what was happening in front of me. I was having like that great of an experience with the, this dance scene that was put together. Anyway, so that kind of thing. I mean, there's so much more that happened at this festival mm. that I could talk about. Um, but yeah, there's just a couple of those things that really shocked me as to how I kind of... Um, thought I might approach them. That makes me jealous and I wish that I was there. Aperol spritz. (sighs) Aperol spritz in the sun. Very jealous. Yeah, well, you know, maybe it's not all about that. Maybe you're going to pay for us next year. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should all pay for ourselves to go next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With the money that we have. Yeah, I'll buy you an Aperol spritz. Well, that, that's quite an that, enticement. That, that is an enticement. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and that we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this August. Mark? Well... 
we just uh, recently concluded the Melbourne International Film Festival, and unfortunately I was absurdly busy with a whole stack of other things and didn't get to anywhere near as many films as I had hoped. I did get to one that I really loved, and I think I like it more like almost two or three weeks after I've seen it that I liked it at the time, and that is Guy Madden's The Green Fog, um, mm. which initially I, I watched it and thought, that's really interesting. I find that really interesting, and I'm not quite sure how engaged I am with it um, because it is a, a, a sort of rough attempt to recreate Vertigo, but not with Vertigo, uh, just using a whole stack of other footage from a range of other titles and TV shows, movies cut together. Uh, and I found that the more I'm away from it, the more I keep thinking about how fascinated I am by it. Um, the, the capacity to have a whole series of scenes where people are about to speak or have finished speaking, but the dialogue is taken away and the excision of that dialogue, everything that's unspoken seems to be kind of repeating in my brain. Like I feel like I have to go back to it and engage with it again. Um, I sat down to watch it thinking that it was going to be this version of Vertigo, which it kind of roughly is. Um, but it also was in fact, the way that I felt about it more just like a city symphony film. Uh, and I do, I've got a real soft spot for those city symphony films, just the kind of crazy investigation into the architecture, the streets, the experiences of a city. And so just to sit down with the green fog and I've never been to San Francisco, unfortunately, but just feeling that city emerge out of all of this other footage from all of these other films, rock Hudson kind of overseeing the whole show in, in his own way was, was just fascinating. And I think I have to go back to it because I feel like I'm building it up more and more and more in my mind, the further away I am from mm. it, which makes me feel like I've got to go back and re-engage with it. That I divided Plato's cave. Yeah. Oh. I did it. The radio team I'm on. Yeah. yeah that divided Plato's and, and cave. And you were on which side of the division? Well, I didn't see it because ah. we weren't seeing everything, but there were three of on our team, Sally Christie, Emma Westwood, and Lisa Kovacevic, and that completely divided really? yeah. the team. Which so I'd be on I the wanted... yes team. Yeah. The yes to the yeah. green fog team. No, but now I really want to chase it up. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. just found it like what a great way to mm. play around with cinema yep. and to pay homage to a really incredible classic film and an incredible and city. city. Yep. Mm. But yep. do it in such a fascinating, interesting, perverse sort of way. Yeah. I loved it. Great. Stewie? Well, I'm currently uh engrossed in this season four of The Bridge. Uh, um, to try to speak Danish and Swedish. Uh, and I love that series. I think it is such a brilliant uh, construction of narrative and how all of these peripheral characters are introduced uh, to the sort of the season. Um, and so you're not sure how each character's kind of relate to the main kind of criminal investigation. And then later on, something happens and then they become related. And I think it's an incredible... Um, uh, show and it's the final season and it's um, for those that are in Australia it's on SBS On Demand um, but there's one other screen related thing that I've been loving um, so last week um, in Australian politics there's <sighs> been a lot of uh, just shit fighting in Canberra <sighs> but one thing I have been loving is that all of the Simpson-related political memes <laughs> that are being shared online. And there's this new... I mean, Simpsons has been kind of trashed a bit lately, I think. It's been kind of not as funny anymore. And But I think with political memes that circulate online, there's this new, uh, I guess, reinvigoration of yeah. Simpson fandom and love. And, uh, and they're really smart memes. Um, so which, which is more than you can say for Australian politics. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a really great Facebook page called Simpsons Against the Liberals, and a lot of them are collected there. Um, so that's my other screen-related <laughs> thing I loved. Yeah. Great. Um, my recommendation is something that I think probably a lot of people have already seen, but if you haven't, get to it. It's Killing Eve. Oh, um, I have not got new, to it. Yes. Uh, what is it? Um, BBC series, I think. BBC America. BBC America. So I got back from Europe and before the start of MIF, I watched this in two nights. Uh, I kind of meant to go a lot more slowly, but, but SBS on, on demand, which is what this is screening on in Australia, 
just says, like, has these advertisements that he's like, great new things to binge. Anyway, so I was like, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, but it's just so good. I love the way, I mean, obviously Sandra O, oh, who's the lead character, is incredible to watch in any scenario. Mm. But she's the lead in this and it's great. I also, it took me a while to um to get on board with her, but I really like Jodie Comer, who yeah, she's is playing incredible. the, I guess, the villain of the mm. show, and that their chemistry is really interesting. I also just adore Fiona Shaw. Oh, <laughs> um, yes. Fiona Shaw is in there. Yeah, who's yeah, a very straight-laced, oh, yeah. like, Fantastic. MI6 boss, but then she's just has these weird, absurd kind of qualities that are just, I don't want to talk about it because it's just so... Nice to see it unravel yeah. with her character. I'm really wary of kind of talking it up too much. Right. Cause I, because I know people will eventually go watch it and it's like, this isn't the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but for me, it is actually the show of the year. Like, <laughs> it just, is so smart. It's very funny and smart and very watchable. Yeah. Um, and I also really love what it's doing with... The, I mean, I don't, I think it's updating a lot of things, but I love what it's doing with certain templates and histories of the detective like the detective archetype, yeah. the the villain archetype, the this idea of the assassin, and this embroiling these kind of new archetypes in a very um, clever way with what we expect of um, female behaviour. Yeah. And that I think that just in doing that and in, in the very clever skip, script writing um, and editing, it's actually a very, yeah. it's more clever than it might appear to be on first viewing. Yeah, and the, the, the fashion and the way the cities are mm. shot and the music. There's a really great Spotify playlist oh, cool, of all cool, of cool. the, the oh, wow. music from the TV show. It's incredible. Okay, great. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's just, it's been like, I mean, I know we just had Myth, so I've obviously been thinking about other things, but I think it's been what I've dedicated most of my brain to mm. this and month. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's the yeah. showrunner, she's done some great stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, second season is coming and I can't wait. All right. Thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thanks to Stuart for coming back to speak with us again. You're welcome. And it's always such a pleasure to have you on, Stewie. Thanks to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Morey, who we've all unanimously voted as one of the top 25 sound producers in Australia. <laughs> thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of the recording studio here in beautiful Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we'll speak with you again next month. Mm-hmm.